0: Okay, um, does anybody need a green sheet? Did I get one last time? Is everybody enrolled in the course? Does anybody need to add codes? Because we do have them for a limited time. But if you see anybody who was in here last time and said I gave up because I didn't think I was going to be able to add, it is possible to add right now because I do have add codes, but like I said, that probably will not be the case next week. So if you talk to people or on the fence, let them know to email me as soon as possible. Okay, so that said, we're going to start the actual content of the course today. And we will talk about absorption of light. That's really the key element of spectroscopy is the interaction of light and matter. I mentioned that last time. So we're going to talk about this classical model today. Uh, Later on, we'll talk about the quantum model. Ultimately, it's a quantum effect when photons get absorbed by uh, material. We'll start with a classical model. It's a little easier to understand and tells us most of what we're going to want to know about how the light and matter interact. Uh, before we do that, uh, one announcement. Equation 2.22 in Demtroder, that's the uh, laser spectroscopy textbook, the main textbook that we'll be using, is wrong. This is what it should be. I think it's a factor, the cube isn't there or something like that in the textbook. That's good. They fixed it, I assume? Yeah. Or is this is the equation number still the same? Yeah. OK. That's good. That's perfect. Um, yeah, I have the third edition, so that's the fourth edition, then? OK. okay. Um, so we'll talk about what light is, how we're going to treat light. Um, and today, that means it's a wave. Next time we meet, it'll be a particle, we'll do photons, but right now we're doing the classical theory, so light's going to be a wave. We'll talk about how we treat molecules, and today, and really in this class in general, um, I'm going to be, well, I will do my best to use the term atom or molecule appropriately, but at least today when I talk about molecules, understand that this could also apply to atoms, as well as, as compound molecules. Um, and we'll talk about what goes on when the light and the molecules interact and we'll build up our classical electron oscillator model that's what this this, uh, topic is today the classical electron oscillator model so if you need to look this up in a textbook or online look up classical electron oscillator and what it will tell us is the line shape for the absorption profile of the material so if material absorbs certain wavelengths that means we can plot the spectrum, the absorption spectrum, and there should be wavelengths that get absorbed. What do the shape of those absorption lines look like? We will derive that today. Um, and probably uh, towards the end of class, maybe we won't get have time to get to this, but we'll talk about um, how that line shape and the uh, absorption profile that we determine affects some material properties like the atomic susceptibility that's related to the index of refraction, the common optical property of a material, um, and the cross-section, which is a term that's commonly used in spectroscopy to describe effectively how big or how large an obstruction a typical molecule is. Um, and so we'll get all that from this classical model. Okay, So we'll start with a simple picture of what a spectrum looks like. Um, A spectrum, say an emission spectrum of some material, in this case a light bulb, is usually formed by passing it through a slit, dispersing it. Here I've shown a prism to disperse it. Most modern uh, spectrometers would have a grating instead of a prism for some reasons that we'll uncover later. Um, And the different wavelengths of the light that are in this emission will come out at different angles due to the dispersion of the prism. And so if there's only discrete wavelengths here, you will see on a piece of film or on a CCD or some sort of photo detector uh, lines, essentially, that correspond to angles at which those wavelengths got refracted. And that plot right here, then, is what we call our spectrum. Uh, What's the purpose of this slit? Okay, so it it, uh, restricts the angle of the input light waves sort of as I've drawn it. Why is that important? So you can get a resolution between the different vertical lines? Yeah, so if we didn't have that and we had light coming out sort of isotropically in all directions, then you can imagine even for a single frequency source, um, light hitting it at different angles, so there's a spread in angles of the incident light. So if each one of those angles gets refracted by a certain amount, there would still be a spread in angle of the refracted light. And instead of having these nice discrete lines, we'd have some smearing of those lines. And it would lower the resolution of our instrument. And okay, in practice, there's more to it than this. There's usually at least uh, a couple imaging optics here to image this slit onto the detector plane. And um, more details that we'll discuss later. But for now, this is a picture that you can have in your mind. And fundamentally, absorption is a quantum mechanical process where a single photon of light. And this is my little drawing of what I think a photon looks like, and this is my little drawing of what I guess that a helium atom would look like. Um, and that's just a little cartoon sketch. And what I tried to to show by both the radius of this little electron cloud and um, I guess entirely by the radius of that electron cloud is that this is in a ground state or low energy level state, and when it absorbs a photon of the appropriate frequency such that it can kick that electron or those electrons into a higher energy state, uh, your electron cloud would get bigger and the energy in this photon is then absorbed in the atom and you have an excited state. So fundamentally we need to have a quantum picture to understand what goes on, um, but like I said, we'll get to that later. We'll start with a, a classical picture. Okay, so in order to understand the interaction, we need to understand how we model light, how we model the matter, and then finally how we put them together. The light we'll treat as a sinusoidal electromagnetic field. So it's an oscillating electric field. The matter we'll treat as a simple harmonic oscillator, or actually we'll treat, well, yeah, the matter by itself we'll treat as a simple harmonic oscillator. So think of an electron. Uh, nucleus and if you pull the electron away from the nucleus there's an electrostatic force that pulls it back. It's like a mass in a spring. You let go, it's going to oscillate. We treat our matter like that and when that matter is driven by the light, so you have an electron which is charged an electric field due to the light which pushes on electric charges it's going to drive that electron back and forth. So we'll treat that as a driven harmonic oscillator. And that's going to be the interaction, a driven harmonic oscillator. So the math we do today is basically out of Physics 101, the first mechanics class. We may use a little bit different notation than you used then, but we're essentially driving uh, the transfer function of the Tacoma Narrows Bridge, which collapsed when the wind blew all sorts of driven harmonic oscillators like a swing or a pendulum that you may have studied uh, in previous courses. Okay, so let's start with our light. Our light, I said, we will treat as a sinusoidal electric field. In doing so, I'm assuming single frequency. A frequency omega. But because light obeys the superposition principle, you could imagine a wave described by this expression. And if the light that that's supposed to represent has other frequency components, you could just add additional terms at each frequency that exists in the light. Okay, so we'll just look at one frequency. If we understand how light at that frequency behaves, we can understand how light at any frequency behaves. So there's a sinusoidal oscillation in time and in space. Okay, so this this k dot r term is just a term that represents the phase of the light that's going to change as the position changes. It's just the spatial dependence of the wave. There's some amplitude over here. So e naught is the amplitude, and because electric fields have a direction associated with them, that's a vector. Okay, so the vector of this amplitude describes the direction of the time-dependent electric field. Uh, a couple comments. I think I mentioned this last time as well. This omega, I'm calling the frequency. More specifically, it's the angular frequency. So it's 2 pi times what we normally call the frequency, the, the linear frequency, or the number of cycles per second. So omega is in units of radians per second. F is a quantity that we usually specify as hertz. So. Generally, if I give an example and I give some number for the frequency, and I say it's in Hertz, that means it's in linear frequency f. If I specify the units as radians per second, that's the an angular frequency omega. Um, this k we call the wave vector. It's a vector; it has a direction. It's the direction that the wavefront is propagating. Okay, so, here. You advance along the direction of propagation, then this term is going to increase. If you advance in the opposite direction of propagation, this term decreases, and if you move perpendicular to the direction of propagation, this dot product is zero, and the wavefront doesn't change. Okay, so k is called the k vector. Its magnitude, so without the vector notation, we often call the wave number, and the wave number is just related to the wavelength of the material. So if lambda-naught is the wavelength in vacuum, lambda-naught over n is the wavelength in a material of index n. And so k is 2 pi over the wavelength, or 2 pi n over lambda-naught. So we can go between wavelength and this uh, spatial frequency using that expression. Okay, So that's our light. It's an oscillating electric field. There's also a magnetic field, which we're not going to worry about. Now, what differentiates optical electric fields from other electric fields? So say radio waves are also electric fields, oscillating electric fields. What makes them different than optical waves? Frequency, right? So optical waves are higher frequency. And that has a fundamental consequence when you go to work with these things. Anybody want to hazard a guess as to what's fundamentally different when dealing with an optical wave versus, a say, a radio wave? Well, it's, it's related to power in that uh, an electric wave, if you want to detect an electric wave um, that's at relatively low frequency, say a radio wave, you can cause that electric field to excite, push on an electric charge and excite a current in an antenna. That's what happens in your radio antenna, your television antenna, whatever. Um, With optical frequencies, that current oscillates too fast for electric circuitry to follow. So you can't observe the the time-dependent current in an antenna if it's induced by optical waves. Instead, all we can observe is the average power deposited into the antenna. Essentially the heat generated um, in the antenna as the current's oscillating back and forth. So the term, so while the electric field is what we described as modeling the light, that's useful in understanding what the light's going to do. What we actually can observe in a laboratory is not the electric field itself, but a quantity proportional to the electric field squared, which is the irradiance irradiance is essentially how much power is deposited in a given area by an optical wave. And it's proportional to the electric field squared. And more precisely, it is equal to some constant times the time average of the field squared. And it's this time average, averaged over many optical particles, that kills off all the information about the um, instantaneous motion of the electrons driven by the electric field, we only see the time average amplitude of those oscillations. Okay, so electric field has units of volt. If we square it, and that's volt squared per meter squared. A radiance is a measure of power per unit area. So these constants have to have units of ohms so that a radiance will be measured in watts per meter squared. And the electric field will be in volts per meter. Okay, so that's our light. That's all I'm going to say about that for now. Let's look at our molecules. So again, molecules could be atoms, could be ions. What we know is that in equilibrium, if we have molecules that are stable, they should have some equilibrium position, length, uh, orientation, whatever parameter it is that's going to be perturbed in this optical interaction, there should be some equilibrium value for that parameter. So let's just imagine uh, say a carbon dioxide molecule where you've got carbon, two oxygen, there's some bond length between them. And let's say we're going to absorb some light and that light is going to go into stretching out the bonds. Okay, so if you plot, for example, the bond length between the carbon and oxygen, there'd be some potential energy stored in that bond and some minimum which would define the equilibrium bond length. So in the absence of an external perturbation, there will be a given bond length. Likewise, if you consider a hydrogen atom, we talk about the average radius of the electron cloud. There's some average radius, called the Bohr radius, at which in the ground state the electron cloud would be at. And the electron can be pulled further away, but it takes energy. It can be compressed closer, but that also takes energy. So there's some sort of potential well at which our molecule is sitting when it's unperturbed. And we can, regardless of the functional form of this well, we can always expand around this minimum in a Taylor series expansion. Taylor series expansion just means writing out all the polynomial terms to describe this function. So there's a DC offset. There's a slope. What's a slope at the minimum? Zero, by definition. There's a quadratic term, which is a parabolic term. There's third order, fifth order, fifth order, all these higher order terms. If you have a function b of r and you want to write it in terms of uh, its parabolic or polynomial components, you do a Taylor series expansion. There's a DC component. There's the magnitude of the slope times the distance away from that point. This is the expression for a line. There's a magnitude of the curvature times a parabolic term. And there'd be higher order terms as well. Now, typically we ignore the higher order terms, say that they're small. And that's certainly true if you're close enough to equilibrium. The closer you are, smaller this term here and as you raise it to the third fourth fifth higher order terms small n- small number raised to a high power is even smaller so if you work close enough to equilibrium you can safely neglect the higher order terms at equilibrium this slope is zero so you just have a dc offset and some parabolic well that you are that describes the the well that your molecule is in. So we'll treat the molecule as originally being at this equilibrium point, and we'll treat its potential well as being parabolic. So that's a simple harmonic oscillator. Lots of different molecules can be treated this way. I already mentioned you can have, uh, say, the bond length of a covalent molecule stretched and compressed, that's where the energy that makes up that potential well can go. You can have the electron cloud of an atom or molecule displaced from, uh, and that can, uh, that can be the energy in the potential well, or you can have, uh, say, magnetic or electronic uh, dipole moments that line up to an external field, and that induced torque is a restoring force causes them to try to align so this idea that we have some, some parameter that we're dealing with, the length of a bond or the uh, displacement of an electron cloud or the orientation of a molecule um, the mathematics is very similar we will do our analysis assuming that we're stretching a bond, so we're talking about a linear displacement but you could go through the same analysis and deal with an angular rotation and torques instead of linear displacement and forces Okay, so, we've talked about the model of our electric field, sinusoidal oscillation, and the model of our matter. It's a simple harmonic oscillator. It's an object at the bottom of a potential well. If you displace it, it will oscillate around that equilibrium. So let's put these two things together. And for that, we're going to use the second law. Force is mass times acceleration. Our force that acts on our molecule is going to come from the light, from the electric field that drives it. It produces an electric force. The acceleration is what we're going to be interested in. If we can solve for the acceleration, then we can solve for how the position of our oscillator varies in time. And Once we know that, we can pretty much figure out everything we want to know about it. Okay, so the force in equilibrium acting on our molecule is just a restoring force. So it's a spring constant. That's what this, uh, if V is the function that describes the potential well, its second derivative is the spring constant at equilibrium. This is the displacement from equilibrium and Hooke's law tells us the spring constant times the displacement is the restoring force. That has to equal mass times acceleration, and we'll write acceleration as the second time derivative of position, so that we've got an expression with displacement on both sides. It's a differential equation. We can solve that for x and get a solution for the displacement of a molecule when the only force acting on it is the restoring force. Okay, so we haven't introduced the light yet. We've just got a molecule. Think of uh, hydrogen atom, you pull the electron away from the atom, we let go, we expect it to oscillate back and forth, to slosh back and forth. This is the mathematics that will describe that. A couple things to be careful of. This mass that we plug in here, we may need to generalize that a little bit if we have a multi-body system to a reduced mass. So if you have, let's say, a uh, covalent oxygen bond with two oxygen molecules or two oxygen atoms in a molecule, the effective mass of the two is going to be found by a combination of the two. Um, That's sort of beyond what I want to get at today. I just mentioned that um, for future reference. Okay, so this is a differential equation. So in order to solve that, we need to dust off our our, uh, differential equations textbook and we find that essentially do trial solution. And you might already know what forms make sense to try for simple harmonic oscillator. We expect simple harmonic motion, meaning sinusoidal solutions. So we could try some amplitude, uh, some displacement that has an amplitude and a sinusoidal oscillating value. Now we're going to do a little bit of magic here um, that you may have seen before, maybe not that's going to make the mathematics a lot easier. And it's going to turn these differential equations into ordinary equations so that we can put our differential equations textbook back on the shelf and just do algebra to solve these differential equations. We will treat sinusoidally oscillating functions as phasors. A phasor is a complex number, or a function in the complex plane whose real part is equal to the functional form that it represents. Okay, so A times e to the i alpha is a phasor. We can use Euler's relation to write e to the i alpha in terms of sines and cosines. Anyone remember that relationship? Yep. So it looks like that. Now, I can go a step further and I can plot this in the real complex plane so that our phasor becomes a graphical object. So if this axis right here represents the real number line then this axis could represent the imaginary number line. And what I plotted is a vector in this, in this space that has a length of A, angle with the real axis of alpha. Right? Its component along the real axis is A cosine alpha the imaginary axis is uh, a sine alpha. And when we add up the real and the imaginary components, we get the whole thing. If we add up the real and the imaginary components, we get the phasor. And when we use these, it's understood that the real part of this phasor represents the function that, it, that it's taking the place of. Okay, So the real part of this the real part now. That's just going to be A cosine alpha. Next that's the function I said I wanted to represent. Or at least save for this omega t. I'll introduce that in a second. So if now I replace alpha with omega t plus alpha, Now I've got a phasor that's not just a vector. It's a vector that changes its direction in time. Right? As time evolves, its angle with respect to this axis is going to increase. So it's spinning around. It spins around once every 2 pi over omega seconds. So our picture of our phasers is arrow that is spinning around in the complex plane, its real component is a projection of that onto this horizontal axis, and that real component is just oscillating back and forth sinusoidally as our vector rotates. So we're trying to model this sinusoidal oscillation, and we're doing it with this rotating vector. So, the reason we do this is because it simplifies the mathematics tremendously to be dealing with exponents instead of trigonometric functions. So what we're going to do is we're going to start with our function, we're going to write it in complex form as a phasor. I guess here is that phasor. It has a complex amplitude, and here I've... i missing a step. I can write this as a e to the i omega t plus alpha, or I can write it as a to the e, a times e to the i alpha e to the i omega t. So the convenient thing about exponential notations, you can separate the different terms. And this one, I'm going to call the amplitude, and this one is the oscillation. Okay, so by doing that, by treating this function as a phasor, I know that the real part of that phasor represents a function. Manipulate this phasor mathematically, use it to solve expressions. And when I calculate some quantity later on, that quantity will be complex, but the real part of it will give me the same answer as if I had started with this form of the phasor. So we'll do an example that'll be more clear in a minute. Um, it also simplifies differential equations because if we have an expression like this, a phasor, that has a complex amplitude, that has a real and imaginary part, as noted by this e to the i thing, then we can ask what effect taking the time derivative has and what effect taking the spatial derivative has. Okay, so this, this is a sinusoidal wave. It's oscillating in time and space. This is what we're going to represent our electric field, which is why we've got the letter E denoting this particular phasor. If I take the time derivative, I have an amplitude. Nothing happens to that. Then I have e to the i times some function of t. Right. So I get e to the i times that function of t times the derivative of that function. Well, the derivative of that function of t is just uh, i times omega. So I get an i omega coming out front. And because everything else is the original function, I can say the time derivative of my phasor is i omega times the phasor itself. Likewise, if I take the spatial derivative, the spatial derivative is the derivative with respect to x plus the derivative with respect to y plus the derivative with respect to z. When I take the derivative with respect to x, I'm taking the x component of this k vector. That's the only component that's going to uh, affect how this function changes in x. And so I have an i times kx coming out front, an i times ky coming out front, and an i times kz coming out front, The x, y, and z components, times the original function. So I know I'm kind of breezing through this, but uh, it's a good exercise to do on your own if you want if you want to understand it better than that. And what we have here then, kx, ky, kz, that's just k. And the x plus y plus z components of a vector is just the vector. So I've got i, the k vector, dotted with the original phasor. And so I can say that any time I take the time derivative, I replace the time derivative with an i omega. And any time I take... I see this uh, del operator, I replace it with i times k. And that allows me to transform my differential equations into ordinary equations. I won't have derivatives anymore, I'll just have factors of i omega and i k. A couple things we need to note that are relevant when we deal with electric fields and optics Because we're going to be interested in observing the intensity of light, and that's the property that we measure in the lab, the intensity is the time average of the electric field. If we're going to treat the electric field as a phasor, we need to know how to take time averages of phasors. So a time average, just in general, a time average of two functions, say a and b, that are multiplied together is whatever that functional form of a times b is and I average it, meaning I add up for some length of time. I add up, the larger number, the larger this quantity would be, so I have to normalize by how long I add up. Divide by t. This is an expression for the time average of a times b. There's function a, there's function b. I add them up, I divide by how long I added. Just an average. In phasor notation, instead of treating these sinusoidal oscillations as real functions, treat them as phasors. And then I can show that this time average is just one-half the real product, the real value of the product of the phasor amplitude A and the complex conjugate of phasor B. So that'll be very useful. Here's the, the proof of that. So let's start with what I started with before. Function A and function B, which are both sinusoidal, amplitude A, amplitude B, with phases alpha and beta. There's two sinusoidal functions multiplied together You take the time average. So if I want to do that, if I want to integrate them, um, that can be done more easily with this trig identity. It says the product of these two cosines can be expanded as the sum of two cosines. So. The sum of those cosines have the sum and difference of the arguments in them. And when I add up the arguments of function A and function B, there's an omega t in each of them. So I get two omega t. And when I subtract these arguments, the omega t's cancel out, and I'm left with a cosine term that lacks the time dependence. Is there a dt? Yeah, there should be. There, thank you. So if you notice an error in class, please mention it for clarity. In order to, in, I will give extra credit for that, but you have to submit it on the web page in order to get extra credit. I, I don't remember after class where the errors were or who caught them. And it's, it's common courtesy to allow the person who mentioned it first, first crack, give them a 24 hours to enter that on the web page for extra credit. If they don't, then, you, then it's free to uh, correct it yourself. Okay, so if we want to integrate this over a long period of time, long meaning many cycles of this oscillation, then what's going to happen is we have a term that's oscillating rapidly. It's necessarily rapid because we're going to integrate over many cycles. And if you average an oscillation over many cycles, what do you get? Half the time it's positive, half the time it's negative. If you average long enough, it'll average to zero. And so this thing is going to go away. This term is not changing in time. So its average value is just its instantaneous value. It's always the same value. And so doing this average just gives us this quantity, the second term. But we can write this as a phasor. Times alpha minus beta is e to the i alpha minus beta in phasor form. The real part of this is cosine alpha minus beta. So this is a phasor that represents this function. I can add an omega t and subtract an omega t to the argument. So I add an omega t and I subtract an omega t. So that's got an error. That should be e to the i omega t plus alpha minus i to the omega t plus beta. And what I end up with is, I write that out since there an error. So I say e to the i alpha minus beta, is equal to e to the i omega t plus alpha minus omega t minus beta. So I added omega t, I subtracted omega t. And then I say that's equal, let me separate out uh, these two terms. I have one that looks like omega t plus alpha, and I have one that looks like minus i omega t plus beta. And then if I also include my amplitude of AB 2 on each of these, I can write this as 1 half times AE to the i omega t plus alpha times B e to the minus i omega t plus beta And I can call this my phasor A. So I'll use this tilde over the letter to denote phasor, just the way an arrow over a letter denotes a vector. And if phasor B, right out phasor A is equal to A e to the i omega t plus alpha. So if I use the same convention for describing phasor B, phasor B is B e to the i omega t plus beta, Well, I don't have B e to the i omega t plus beta. I have B e to the minus i omega t plus beta. So that is B star, the complex conjugate of B. And so the phasor representation of the average is one-half A times B star. And to get that back into a functional form, you just take the real part of that phase in. and it turns out because A and B commute, it doesn't matter whether it's A or B that I take the complex conjugate. So we're going to use this all the time when we have an electric field and we want to figure out how much power is in that field. We're going to be taking the electric field and squaring it, so A and B are both going to be the same. So if A and B are number times its complex conjugate, is just its magnitude. A phasor times its complex conjugate is its magnitude squared. Okay, so let's apply all this. Let's apply all this to our model of an electron sitting in a cloud around a hydrogen atom. Uh, Before we said, if we displace it from equilibrium, we let it go, it's going to slosh back and forth. Okay, so here is our restoring force, the spring constant times the displacement. It equals mass times acceleration. Now let's explicitly write the displacement as a phasor. We know it's going to be oscillating, or we expect it to oscillate. So oscillating functions will treat as phasors to simplify the math. We know there's some equilibrium position. And there's some displacement from that equilibrium, which I'll call delta x. And it's that displacement which is going to have the oscillation delta x. I'm explicitly writing out the, uh, the the oscillation of that displacement. Okay, so if we plug that value in x minus x not, this just becomes delta x e to the minus e to the plus i omega t. I on the left side and on the right side I have to take the time derivative of this Okay the time derivative. How do we take the time derivative of a phasor? Just i omega each time derivative means multiply by i omega So I'm going to multiply this Well, the time derivative of this is is constant. So that doesn't contribute. The time derivative of this part gets an i omega. And because we're the second time derivative, I'm going to do that twice, and multiply by the original function. OK, so now I can solve this. I can solve it for the displacement as a function of time. So, some terms... So, I guess I can't solve it for displacement. Delta X is displacement, but that cancels. So, what do I learn from this? Uh, the t's cancel. I can solve for omega. The rate at which this is going to oscillate. Um, minus V double prime equals... This I squared is going to give me a minus. So, omega is square root of V double prime over n. Okay, so remember I said V double prime is the spring constant. A simple harmonic oscillator, a mass on a spring, has a natural frequency of square root of k over m. And that's what we're seeing here. Okay, so we'll call that frequency omega naught. It's the natural frequency. It's the frequency at which this oscillator is going to oscillate when there's no external forces acting on it. We just displace the electron cloud, we let go, we watch it oscillate, this is how fast it sloshes back and forth. Okay, and if we plotted the displacement around the equilibrium position, it would look sinusoidal. Its period would be 2 pi over omega naught, and omega naught is determined from its mass and from the strength of the potential well, the curvature, or the strength of the spring constant holding it. And once we know that, we can write this delta x as having some amplitude. And we know it's going to oscillate at a particular frequency. We know what that frequency is. So we can write now an expression for what the displacement will look like. Okay, so that's the first step. We're going to do two more things. We're going to add damping. Because our system is not in a vacuum. There's material around it that's going to cause all the material to eventually decay back to the ground state. That means it loses energy, so there must be damping. And then we'll add the driving force, which is the light shining on it, uh, inducing this oscillation. Okay, so damping. We'll add a velocity-dependent damping force. That's the standard, standard uh, damping mechanism uh, that's used in mechanics. And so that's saying that our force is no longer just the spring constant, or the Hooke's law force. That's what we had before, it's right here. There's now also a term, which depends on the velocity, x dot, and is negative in the sense that the force opposes the motion, so it's damping. This gamma is, for the moment, arbitrary. It's just an arbitrary constant we put in, and We'll relate it to some physical properties later, and it will make more sense if we call this constant here a gamma times the mass, so that later on the mass factors out. Okay, so we'll call this gamma right now the damping term, the damping coefficient. So now we want to take this force, put it on the left side of our equation of motion. On the right side, we still have mass times acceleration. And just like we did over here, we'll solve this using the same trial solution. So what's different now? On the left side, we have one more term. Take this term right here, add it to the left side, and it's gamma m x dot. How do I write x dot? That's a time derivative of a phasor. What am I going to have for that time derivative? Delta. Yeah, delta x times i omega. So it's only this component of the displacement that has a time dependence. And so the i omega comes out. And I'm left with the original. So just like before, the I omega t's cancel. Just like before, I can solve for omega. This time, there's an additional term to consider. So that's what I had before. Now I've got an additional term. This is a quadratic. I'm going to use the quadratic formula to solve this. It's also complex, so I expect that I'll get complex solutions. So it's just a matter of using the quadratic formula to solve that. Um, well, maybe it's worth doing. I kind of skipped over one point, but since today's our first day of using phasers in the class, it's worth going over. Um. So let me write this out in sort of the standard form that I am used to solving the quadratic formula in. I have negative b plus or minus the square root of b squared minus 4. See? all over 2a. So that's my solution for what omega is. So what does it mean to have a frequency that is complex? No longer has this complex, this imaginary term in So let me just look at the math, remind myself of where that omega appeared. It appeared in an expression for the displacement. If I plug in a complex number into this exponent, the, yeah, the, it's an amplitude change. The complex part of this Gets multiplied by this, and imaginary t- term, the amplitude. Okay, so you can see that factored out, um, the term that out is going to be a gamma over two. Right, the m's are going to cancel. There's a gamma over two that gets factored out represents the an amplitude, and then the remaining term, the oscillation. And the oscillation the resonant frequency, the oscillating frequency gets shifted away from the resonant frequency due to the damping. So there's a slight difference in the frequency. And that's because this term here, under the radical, that's going to be the real part of omega that gives rise to the oscillation, in it has a gamma in it. So when gamma is 0, 4mv over 2m, that cancels. I get square root of v over m, like I had before. Okay, so this is more likely what we would expect in a real world situation. We pull our electron cloud away from our nucleus. We let go. It sloshes back and forth, and eventually comes back to equilibrium. That's what we see here. The equilibrium position. Okay, so let's put all this together and now also include our electric field. So now we've got our hydrogen atom. We shine light on it. So our light is a sinusoidally oscillating electric field. Well, electric fields push on charges. The electron cloud is charged, so there's going to be a force that's oscillating, that's driving this oscillation. Okay, so we still have the restoring force. We still have the restoring force. And now we add on an electric field times an electric charge. An electric field is the force per unit charge. This is the charge on a single electron. And so for the case of a hydrogen atom, this would be the appropriate force to use. That adds one more term to the left side of our equation of motion. So remember, that wasn't there, and we solved this equals. to n. OK, so we're going to do the same thing again. We just have one more term to consider. Um, so unlike all these other terms, all these other terms depend on the displacement, right? And so when I write out the equation of motion, the displacement canceled. So I could solve for the frequency, but the displacement just depends on how what my initial amplitude is. Here, this term does not depend on displacement. Right? The charge is pushed down by the electric field regardless of where it is. And as a result, if these terms depend on displacement, this one does not, I can no longer cancel out displacement. Instead, I can solve for it. So let me add. That term into our mix, so e e cosine omega t plus phi naught, and I'm going to write that as uh, e to the i omega t plus phi naught. I'm going to write it in this complex form. Now we can solve for delta x. This molecule is going to vary in time. Put all the terms with a delta x on the left. Got minus gamma m i omega minus v double prime. I squared is in minus one, so that becomes positive. I'll make it squared. And I'll bring this right side. And I need to. I need to be a little careful here. and um, haven't been so careful on the board. What is this frequency omega? It's the free not of the well what does this term represent? The light. The light. It has nothing to do with the atom. So this omega has nothing to do with the atom. This is the frequency of the light. Let me, for the moment, call it omega sub l, for lack of a better um, It's not the same, necessarily, as this omega. This omega is just whatever frequency the atom's going to oscillate at. Okay. And we'll find. Uh, that because it's driven by the light, that's actually the frequency at which it will oscillate. Um, Okay, so that's a separate step. Saying that if you're pushing on something with an oscillating force, you expect it to respond at the same same frequency. Okay, so let omega L equal omega L. a little bit of bookkeeping, so we're back to where we started. And okay, now, I can solve for delta x. So I'm going to as the product of two exponentials. And that lets me cancel out this exponential and. This E is the electric charge, the charge of the electron. That E is the exponential. Um. And here's the displacement that I would get for my atom when it's acted on by this external electric field. I can rewrite it a little bit to simplify. I know that by definition, square root of V double prime over N, I'm calling that the natural frequency of my molecule. So I can write V double prime as M omega naught squared. And what's nice about doing that is it introduces a nice... nice uh, comparison between these terms in the denominator. And if I divide everything by m, I get the form that I have up here on the board. On the the projector. So this is a displacement that's complex. So again, we might ask, what does that mean to have a complex displacement? And again, it's going to result in uh, and exponentially decaying amplitude. So what's useful to do is uh, if we want to write the real part of this, we can multiply the top and the bottom by the complex conjugate of the bottom. We can rationalize the denominator, what that is. So we multiply the top and the bottom by uh, the real part plus i gamma omega. And then when we do... Uh, we have a rational denominator. We just take the real part of the numerator, and that gives us an expression for the displacement. That's equivalent to this form here. I'm going to leave that that math step as an exercise for you. And there's an amplitude term, and there's a phase term. So if you recall from your introductory physics course where you studied driven pendulum. Probably saw or discussed a phase lag for the pendulum relative to the driving force. That's easy to visualize. Here's a pendulum. I will now drive it. If I drive it slow, then the bottom of the pendulum follows the top. Right? It follows the driving force. If I drive it at resonant frequency, there's a 90-degree phase shift between the applied force and the response of the system. If I drive it fast, there's a 180-degree phase shift between the way I'm driving it at the top and the way it's responding at the bottom. So you can see that. And that's what this beta is. And so beta is the frequency at which this atom is being driven. That's the frequency of the light. And when the frequency is low, then beta is 0. 0 and there's no phase lag. When the frequency is large, and this is a large number, beta becomes 180 degrees, 180 degrees phase lag. And then about the amplitude, this is the amplitude of the response of my electron. So I've got an electron on my hydrogen atom. I shine light on it, and it starts to oscillate. And in the steady state, it will reach some amplitude of oscillation given by this expression. Right. The greater the charge, the more it's going to be pushed around by the electric field. So that's what we'd expect. The greater the mass, the more resistant it is it's going to be to be pushed around. So we expect this E over M ratio. The stronger the electric field, the greater the displacement. That's linear. We'd expect that as well. But the interesting stuff lies here in the denominator. So first of all, if the frequency at which we're driving it is nowhere near the resonant frequency, then this term is going to be large. And if this term is large, the denominator can be large, the amplitude will be small. So it's not going to respond unless we're driving it near the resonant frequency. So conversely, if this term is small... If omega is near omega-naught, if we're driving it near resonance, this term is small, then the denominator can be small. Okay, certainly in the case where there's small damping, gamma is small, so there's small damping, then the denominator is small, the amplitude is large. So I think oops, it's not quite shown yet. So the amplitude of our oscillator depends on the frequency we drive it at. So that's a classical picture. But our quantum mechanical argument is going to go something like this. The atom can only absorb a photon if the energy it absorbs can transition it from one quantum state to the next. So there's only certain frequencies it can absorb. The classical picture tells us there's only certain frequencies, omega naught, at which it will respond. If it doesn't respond, if the atom is not influenced by the electric field, it's not going to absorb the light. So you can think of the atom having a large amplitude, When it's driven, it's being absorbing the light. Okay, so if we wanted to measure, for example, the absorption spectrum of this atom or molecule, as we drive it with different frequencies of light, we wouldn't directly observe the displacement of the electric field. We'd observe how much power gets absorbed. Okay, so the power absorbed, or just in general, power is force times the velocity. So if we look at the force pushing on the molecule, dotted with the velocity of the molecule, that would be the power being delivered to the molecule. If the force comes from the light, the power is coming from the light, it's going into the molecule, that's absorption. And we're going to have to do a time average because we can't observe the fluctuations at optical frequencies. We only see the average power absorbed, averaged over many optical frequencies use that trick of uh, phasor time averaging that we saw the math for earlier. OK, well, the force, the electric force, is just the electric charge times the electric field. And so we'll just write our electric field here in phasor notation. The velocity is just the time derivative of the displacement. Time derivative of the displacement, we just pull out an i omega. Right, So we have an i omega times, everything else here is our expression for the displacement. And when we go through this multiplication, we'll make a few assumptions. We'll assume that it's moving in the direction it's being pushed, so that that dot product is equivalent to scalar multiplication. And then using the electric field, that we assume had an amplitude of E naught. So using for this phaser, sorry, for the phaser I would write it like this. That E tilde times that e tilde I have to do this in phasor form, I have to take the conjugate of one of the two functions. So I have e tilde times the complex conjugate of this term which has an e tilde in it. So a phasor times its complex conjugate is its amplitude squared. Here's the amplitude squared. The 1 half also comes from that time average. you look back a few slides and see the time average of two quantities is 1 half the phasor product of the first quantity times the complex conjugate of the next. And this other stuff is just left over uh, from that phasor amplitude. And this is an expression then for the power. I want the real part of this. So again, I can rationalize the denominator and uh, take the real part of the expression that results. So the real part of the denominator gets multiplied by the numerator. The numerator is already complex, but the imaginary part times the numerator, it's going to give me a real part, and that's going to look like gamma omega squared e squared over m. Gamma omega squared e squared over m. I pulled the 2 up into the numerator, and the denominator is going to have this term squared Minus this term, or plus this term squared. And it has the same parameters or behavior as the displacement. When the driving frequency is near the natural frequency, the absorbed power is a maximum. When it's far from the resonant frequency, the absorbed power is low. And what determines the scale of far or not far? And it's going to be how big this term is compared to that term. So it's going to be this gamma. And we can see that by plotting this. If we plot the power that gets absorbed as we pass through resonance, so as a function of frequency as we go through the resonant frequency, we can see there's going to be a maximum right at the resonant frequency. Far from resonance, it's going to drop to essentially zero. And the point where it's half of its maximum is a distance away that depends on gamma. Depends on the amount of damping. In fact, you can show uh, pretty easily that when omega deviates from the natural frequency by gamma over 2, that's when the power reduces to half. Okay, so, now gamma, which I introduced as an arbitrary constant. Um, I said we'll call it the damping coefficient. Now we see it has some observable property. It's, it's related to an observable property, which is what we call the line width. Okay, if I'm plotting the power absorbed as a function of frequency, that is a spectrum. Right, I can do that with that initial experiment I showed, passing light through a slit and then through a prism observing the power that gets transmitted, power transmitted is going to be the inverse of this. Okay, but the, the width of that line is going to depend on gamma, the amount of damping in the material. So by observing not only the frequency of the absorption lines. You can learn a lot about the material properties. By observing the width as well, you can learn about the material properties, the damping. That would depend on things like the density of the material. Okay, so let's review what we've done. Um, We started with a model for a free charge, or not a free charge, but a simple harmonic oscillator treating matter just being a, a charge attracted to some, some nucleus, and it could oscillate around that. So that was very much like a spring, a mass and a spring. It obeyed Hooke's law, we went through the math to show that there's a natural frequency at which a spring will vibrate, there's a natural frequency at which our charge will oscillate around. Then we extended that to include damping, and then a driving force. And when we did, we showed that the displacement of our charge is a function, not only at how to it, but at what frequency. The power that's absorbed is also then a function of frequency, and we've plotted what that function of frequency looks like. And I should mention the name of this, this shape, this is called the Lorentzian line shape. A function that looks like 1 over x squared plus 1 is called the Lorentzian. So that's a Lorentzian line shape. And it has a full width half max that's equal to gamma, which is our damping coefficient. And so we've related a mathematical quantity to a physical observable. And I think that's where we'll stop today. Um, questions? OK, let's just take a quick look ahead. We're going to relate this then to the things that the absorption spectrum tells us. And about the uh, we're going to relate this as well to the atomic susceptibility, which is related to the index of refraction. So we're going to take this model and use it to explain why different materials have different indices of refraction. And that's about as far as this classical electron oscillator model can take us. Uh, And then we go into this point, the quantum picture. So probably next Monday, we'll do a little bit more classical stuff. On Wednesday, we'll start the quantum.